You're listening to SuperPod, Road to One Million, presented by SuperOps.ai, where we ask top MSP owners what it's like in the trenches and what does it take to build a million-dollar MSP. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of SuperPod, Road to One Million. I'm so thrilled to have with me Tracy Pound. Tracy has over 37 years' experience working in tech and has successfully implemented business systems and training programs across many different industries. She's the founder and MD of Maximity, which offers IT training, consultancy, project management to companies. She's also the chair of the board of directors of CompTIA, the IT Trade Association. She also sits on the advisory board for Channel Futures and is also the, a co-founder of Prism Solutions and Insurance Brokerage. Many feathers in Tracy's cap, I must say. Tracy is also on a mission to help encourage girls and women to look at career in tech, which brings us to the theme of this SuperPod episode, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, What It's Like for a Woman Working in Tech. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you so much for being a part of SuperPod. Well, thank you very much for having me, and, and it's lovely to spend some time with you today. Thanks, Tracy. You know, I sometimes think why, you know, we need to talk about breaking glass ceilings, about women at work, why is it that, you know, even after all these years, it's, that's the discussion, but unfortunately, that's the world we live in. We do need to have these conversations. And, and like I was telling uh, you about uh, this, it's sometimes really lonely being one of the few women in the room. So we need to have more women. We need to have more women at the decision table. And, and tech is what drives everything in the world, right? And so we need to have more women there. And that's why we want to have this conversation. And that's where you come in, Tracy. You've done so much uh, about, um, you know, about bringing more women into tech. You yourself are a great example. And I truly believe that, you know, talking about women who have done it, who have been there and who've done it so beautifully like you have, that is what will really drive the change. And, uh, the, and and also one of the interesting things that I saw when I was reading up about you, you've mentioned in your LinkedIn profile that, uh, you know, you love your job. It's not everyone who says that who, and who deals with that, right? So I wanted to understand that first. Can you talk a little bit about yourself, how you came about into tech and how Maximity and everything else came in after that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I had, I think, probably quite an unusual start to a career um, in as much as there weren't many girls at my school who wanted to study computer science. Um, I was one of two in my A-level class who wanted to do it. Um, and so I've, I've kind of got used to being surrounded more by men and boys than girls and women. And you do get used to that. But my, my parents, if I go back, they worked with computers in the 1950s. So they worked at Cambridge University on EDSAT II, which was one of the first um, sort of big computers that came out in that kind of microprocessing world. And so I grew up with computers at home and they held no fear for me. So my mother and my father both worked with technology and I got used to it, I suppose. So I didn't see it as anything unusual to go into. But when I was at school, I was never any good at maths. And at first I was told, you can't study computer science because you can't do maths well enough. And to me, that was just ridiculous. A lot of computing has nothing to do with having strong math skills. Some does, 
but a lot of it actually doesn't. So I had to fight and fight and fight the school to get them to allow me to, to study computer science. And that did two things. One, it allowed me to study what I wanted to, but the second was it gave me that impetus to not just accept what I was told. So when somebody said to me, you can't do it, my reaction was, well, I want to do it, so I'm going to do it because you don't have a logical reason why I can't do it. And that has spurred me on all the way through my career that, you know, if somebody tells you you can't do something, why? Are they saying it because it's just the socially accepted norm or because there is a real reason behind it? So for me, I've always forged through where people have told me you can't do it. So I was a manager when I was 21, having been told I'd be too young to be a manager. I spent eight years working in automotive manufacturing tier one, tier two, which is even more, or certainly was at that time, much more heavily male dominated than the tech industry was. And do you know, what? I had the time of my life. I absolutely loved it. So I was working in the IT roles, but within manufacturing companies. And I never had any problems. I, I, one of the companies I went to work for, I was headhunted when I was 25 to go and work there. And I ran the internal IT department. I was the first female manager they'd ever employed. And I was the youngest by a good 10 to 15 years. Wow. And that company was 15% owned by a Japanese company. And when my MD told them that he was taking a female manager on, apparently they nearly keeled over because it was such a, a, a rarity to happen. Um, but, you know, if, if you don't push yourself, you don't learn. And if you don't push yourself, nothing ever changes. So I do a lot of talks now, particularly at schools and colleges, just to try and give a little bit of inspiration and guidance to particularly girls to go out there and, and don't be told you can't do something because nobody has the right to tell you what you can't do in your life. So, you know, for me, I, I suppose you know, I, I'm a little bit bullshit. I, I want to make sure that people get the right things at the right level when they're doing their jobs. And I don't see that there should be any difference between a man doing a job and a woman doing a job. I don't see that race, um, ethnicity, uh, religion, anything like that, why we should use that as a reason not to work with somebody and not to employ somebody, because it doesn't change what sits in here and what sits in your heart and how you, how you work and carry yourself out. So I don't like the fact that there are lots of people who say, well, you can't if you're like this. It makes no sense to me. And the more we can get women inspired and involved and wanting to work with technology the better and there have been so many studies done over so many years by lots of big research companies where they've proven that diverse teams achieve better results but we're still not doing it and I think a lot of people have unconscious bias so they develop it over time and it comes from their background and it comes from the way that we live our lives and our social and community structures that says, you know, we are what we've always been. And we need to break those barriers down and make people think consciously about the decisions that they, that they make and the things that they say. And if you look at a lot of technology, so when my, when my daughter, who's now 19, was at school and she was choosing her GCSEs, we went in as you do as parents and you go and talk to all the teachers and they've got their stands up and they're talking to you about the different topics 
and subjects that the, the children can study. The computer science one, all the imagery was of boys. There wasn't a single girl on anything to promote computer science. And people are naturally drawn towards people who look like them. So, you know, if you're just looking at the standard white male, that's what you're going to attract, the standard white male. And then as you go into the world of work and you perhaps, so you're an MSP and you've got a small business, normally you will gravitate towards people who are like you because you get on with them and it makes relationships easier, which is fine to an extent, but it doesn't encourage diversity. And then when you have your website, the images, the pictures are of people who look like you because that's what your world looks like. And then the world gets less and less and less diverse. So a lot of what I'm interested in is how do we break down some of those unconscious barriers and get people to be an awful lot more open. And I know that there's a lot of issues around diversity. And I know a lot of men feel quite put off by women who go, you know, well, we should have more diversity and we should have more of a say in, in technology. But we need to work together. Men and women need to work together to achieve the right result. So I've seen a lot of um, lack of diversity in, in my career because I've worked predominantly with men. But I don't, it doesn't put me off. I know it puts some women off, but it doesn't put me off. And I know some of the studies that are out there show that women are less likely to be forthright and they're less likely to... Um, go for a role or for a job or a project where they aren't 100% sure they can achieve that right result. But men don't think that way. So if they've got some skills, they'll go for it. And I think we need to adapt slightly to, to being like that because you learn. And I, I'm always up for helping people. So I often say yes, where perhaps I should say no. But you, you don't fail, you just learn. You learn to adapt, you learn some new skills, you apply those skills and you become a, a, a bigger person who can do more and help more people. And so I started my own business 22 years ago now. And part of the reason for that was because I just had my first child and I didn't feel comfortable working for a big company where if I needed time off for, uh, to spend with my child, that I would have to ask somebody else's permission and they might say no. And I don't, I've always tried to, since I've started my business, I've always tried to keep that culture of, you know, we are a whole person. So there's not a work Tracy and a home Tracy, there is just me. And yes, I do different things in those different roles, but I still have the same pools on my time irrespective of whether or not I'm at work or I'm at home. So for me, the lines blur a little bit. And if you are gonna run a company or you're gonna be part of a company, it's a much nicer culture if you can encourage the kind of family element into it. So I've always tried to do that as, as part of, you know, running my own business and also in my husband's business in the insurance brokerage, because they do, they employ more people than I do in Maximity, just because it's very admin heavy in insurance. Um, but it's taught me a lot over those years about how to treat people, how to make them feel welcome and wanted. And, you know, I've had bad employers over the years where I don't feel that I've been 
particularly valued in the roles that I've done. And I don't want other people to go through that because we spend so much of our life at work. It, it should be a nice place to be. And, you know, we, women do think about that, I think, a bit more than men. So women think about the environment, the culture, bringing people together, teamwork. And we've got some great strengths in that. So in my business, we do project management, we do consultancy. And, and I think that a lot of our clients value that fact that we're bringing a slightly softer approach to the way that we work because it gets the best result without having to stamp your feet and shout at people. Right. And, and what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, women have advantages. It's not that there, are, there is a disadvantage. We keep talking about or thinking about the disadvantages, right? But we need to think about the advantages, what we do to the table. Yes, absolutely. We've got a lot of opportunities, but it's getting women to, um, to see that they've got the, the chance to take those opportunities and to build a career in technology. And still within the education environment, girls are almost siphoned off into the softer subjects and are not necessarily encouraged to go into the sciences. And we know it because we have problems all across STEM. So all across the sciences, technology, um, engineering, maths, we, we have problems with trying to get women and girls to take those courses and take careers up in, in those areas. And we really shouldn't. I mean, we're in the 21st century, for heaven's sake. You know, we should not be in this position, um, but we, we are where we are. And I think in some ways, when I started my career, it was in 1984. And because the computing industry was so young then, so, you know, the IBM PC had just come out. The internet wasn't around. Mobile phones hadn't been invented. I mean, you didn't have hard disks. We were running off five and a quarter inch floppy disks, which probably people these days will never have seen and won't even know what they are. But the world was quite different then. And because technology was new, there was no precedent to how you ran a business or what you could and couldn't do. So there actually wasn't anybody to tell me you can't do that because there was no precedent set to say women can't do these sorts of jobs. So, you know, I progressed really quickly because I was able to, because the industry was quite young. And I think there's more of a problem now with diversity than there was back in the 1980s when I first started my career. And I think some of that is as the industry started to mature, mature industries and mature businesses start to look like other mature industries and businesses, which are by their nature more male dominated than they are female dominated. So I think we've got less diverse as time has gone on, but we have millions of roles that we need fulfilling around the world. Things like cybersecurity. We need so many more qualified staff in cybersecurity. Um, we need developers. We need people who can train. We need people who can project manage. We need people who can test systems. So there's lots of diverse jobs available. We just need more women to apply for those jobs. And I know we've got a lot of um, government sponsored programs that try and focus on women and, and bringing more women into technology. They have some success in terms of the number of people who go on those courses and get qualifications, but they're not moving the dial in terms of the percentage of women that are in the tech industry. So something else is wrong out there. And I don't fully know, I don't think anybody really knows why 
that that happens in entirety. I think it's quite complex. I think there are lots of different reasons, but women really shouldn't fear technology and men shouldn't fear employing women. And um, you know, I've heard all of those conversations about, you know, well, if you employ a woman, she's going to go off and have a baby and, and that's the end of it. But, you know, that, that's a, such a short-sighted view because if you keep that woman on, she will be very loyal, very grateful to come back to a job. And actually, in today's society, what's wrong with having somebody who comes back part-time? Over the last two years with the pandemic, we've seen massive changes in the way that people work and where they work, how they work, why they do the jobs that they do. Why can't we leverage some of the benefit of that? So if you've got women who've got young children, it doesn't mean their brain's gone to mush. It just means that they've got another call on their time. So could they work from home and do their job from there for you? Could you have two part-time people rather than one full-time person? I think really, if we turn it on its head, we've got many more opportunities to make our businesses much more robust and much more flexible around that kind of whole working environment. And that does bring women into it a lot more. And I know there are some men who are stay-at-home fathers and, and, and I take my hat off to them. It's a really good role to have and to do, but predominantly it's a woman's, it's still seen as a woman's role to, to be yes. the mother and the homekeeper and carer. No, very interesting points, and especially the fact that you're talking about how it's easier now to bring that kind of flexibility to make it, um, you know, more diverse. It's not more difficult now. We've seen how the pandemic has changed a lot of our beliefs completely, right? Yeah. And also, I wanted to, um, you know, talk a little bit about, I wanted you to talk a little bit about your business, about Maximity, about, you know, how, how you scaled it up. And what it's like today, what are your clients like, what are the verticals you cover, what are the things that you do? Okay, thank you. So I started Maximity in 2000, as, as I said, because I just had my first child. So it was very much a lifestyle business start for me. It kind of fitted around having um, first my first child and then having another child sort of two and a half years after that. So it fitted my lifestyle and I did training, um, predominantly around Microsoft products back then. And then as children grow up, you get a little bit more of your time back. And I thought, I've got two, two options. I could either keep it back down there or I could grow it. And I was getting lots more clients coming through and too much work for just me. And I went through this whole phase of, you know, do I employ people? Do I not employ people? And if any of the listeners are new business owners, they may well hit this phase. So, you know, you start off because you've got a specific skill and that's not necessarily running a business, but it will be a technical skill. So it could be network management. It could be cybersecurity. In my case, it was kind of training and consultancy. Whatever it is, you start off with that skill and you then get to a point where you think, right, well, I've got to employ people. I don't want to. Yes, I will. No, I won't. Yes, I will. No, I won't. Because there are so many pros and cons to it. And eventually I bit that bullet and decided that, yes, it did need to grow and I would employ people. And it becomes a little bit of a roller coaster because you get a different mindset coming into the company and you you all your culture, the reason why you set your business up, you've got to try and get across to the people that work for you. And at the end of the day, they, they don't own that business. So they're never going to have the same vested interest in success that you do. 
you'll get quite close to it with some, but not with all. So one of my big lessons was kind of just learning to let go when it comes to employing staff of trying to get them to be like me because they're not me. They don't see the world from my perspective. They've not been through the startup of the business. So their, their view of it is, is different by its nature. That doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it different. So I've learned a lot of things about how to, um, how to encourage people, how to grow a business as part of my journey. And I've got a small team around me now. So what we do predominantly is implementation work. So we implement um, enterprise resource planning systems. So Business Central it is our kind of mainstay. But we do a lot of training as well around Excel, Power BI, and the other Microsoft products. It's, it, it's a funny thing. Everybody thinks they know how to use Word, but I bet you if I sat with virtually anybody for an hour, I could show them some things that would just make their life a little bit easier in, in how to use it. Because we never get taught how to use these things properly. So you kind of learn it from the person next to you, you learn it from Google, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you know the quickest and best ways to use those applications. So we, we do some word training, we do Microsoft project training, we do Visio training, we do Outlook training, um, PowerPoint training, but the, the mainstay of the training that we do is, is around Excel because so many businesses use that for data analysis. So one thing that we also help our clients with where they need it, is to perform that data analysis function for them. Because most people in businesses don't understand how data is structured. And they shouldn't because it's not their business, that's tech's business. But if you're gonna do lots of in-depth data analysis, you have to understand the relationships that sit behind data. And not everybody gets that. Some people you can teach it to, some people just don't want to know. So we, we do a lot of data analysis for our clients. Um, and we've got quite a wide range. So over 22 years, you know, we've worked with lots and lots of big, uh, big companies, of small companies, of startups, of well-established organisations across lots of different sectors. And that's one of the reasons I love what I do. Yeah. I also want to understand, um, you know, when you look back, what are the decisions or steps that you took? You know, if you could pick, say, the top three or top five that led you led maximity to scale that led you to the place you are in today so the first thing is invest in your own infrastructure so it's very easy when you start up to think well i don't need to spend on this and i don't need to spend on that and i don't need a system to do this i'll do it manually or i'll do it on a spreadsheet or i'll do it in a word document but the trouble is the minute you start to scale that will absolutely come back and bite you so from from day one even before day one if you're planning your business make sure that you've got the correct infrastructure to support your business and your clients because if your intention is to grow rapidly if you don't have that infrastructure you will end up employing lots of people to cover up for the fact that you don't have the right infrastructure or you will not deliver the right service and you will lose clients so whatever you can automate, automate it. Whatever you can have as infrastructure, put it in as early as possible because you'll get used to the expenditure of it. And if you don't put it in, then two or three years down the line, I can almost guarantee you'll need to put it in at that point. And it's, it takes much longer 
it costs a lot more and you have a lot more resistance because you've got staff then who go, well, why do we need this system? Why are we doing that? Why are we doing this? Whereas if you start it from day one, you don't have any of that problem at all. The second thing I would say is make sure you understand your reason for your business. So what's your why? Because that needs to be really strong and you need to be able to articulate it really clearly when you start to, to employ staff. So those staff need to understand what drives you, what's important to you, what your ethics are, what your morals are, what your values are. So have those written up. And this was something I should have done from day one and I didn't. And when I came to do it, which was probably just before I started to look at employing people, it took me about six months to do it. Because it's so hard because you get so much in your head and you feel so much, but you can't get it out on, on paper. So it takes a long time to do. So again, early on, as you're starting to build your business, make sure you have a defined culture. And I know a lot of people talk about vision and mission and values. And you could see that as, ah, oh, yes, you know, it's all this management speak. But actually, it's the strength behind your business, because that is what you will then use to measure the people that you employ against. So do they match your values? And if you get those value matches when you employ people, you'll get better staff that are more suited to you and your environment. And I know a lot of people where they say, you know, well, we just we never get the right staff. They come, they go, they come, they go. And a lot of that is because there isn't a strong culture and it isn't clearly understood and it isn't used as part of the onboarding process for recruiting new talent. So if you've got a strong culture, you've got a strong vision, mission, values, then you can use that to help recruit good staff that really fit within your world. And the third is always keep your eye on growth. So keep an eye on your finances. A lot of MSPs struggle with that business side of it. So they outsource the finances to somebody else. It's okay to outsource the doing. It's not okay to outsource the analysis of where your business is performing. If you don't know where you make money, how much profit you're making, what your margins are, what your overheads are, then again, at some point that will come back and bite you. And it's fine looking at the balance that sits in your bank. But unless you know what that money's got to be used for, then that's not a real measure of how well you're performing. So know your figures, understand your figures. If you're not a financial person, it doesn't matter. It's not that complicated, but go on a basic fundamental um, finance course so that you understand how a profit and loss account works. And the same thing as well goes for marketing. A lot of small businesses outsource all of their marketing but then say they get nothing in response from the marketing campaigns that they do. So they drop it. Now, marketing is a long term investment. It's not something you can pick up, do a project, expect to get lots of sales and then not do anything for. So marketing, again, if you outsource it, it's a slow build. You've got to. So I outsource my marketing and the lady that I use, I've worked with for um, probably about 16, 17 years. So she understands my business now. She understands what I'm looking for. And it's great because I don't have to feed her lots of stuff. But in those early days of marketing, you can't outsource your business to somebody else who is not your business. 
you are your own biggest advocate. You understand what you're doing, why you're doing it, how you price, what your customers look like. And it's a slow education process to transfer that knowledge to your outsourced marketing department or social media person. But it's always a partnership. It's never you're doing my marketing and I'm just doing the delivery. You still have to have a say in, in what goes on with it. So be careful what you outsource. Great. Also, I remember you saying uh, this in an, an earlier interview that you were terrified of sales in the yes. early days. So how did you overcome that? <laughs> Do you know, what? I was the world's worst salesperson. <laughs> and so I'd, I'd worked for other people for 15 years before I started Maximity. And I'd done every role except sales. So I'd been a buyer I'd done project management, implementation, training, all the pre-sales, post-sales, all of it, but I'd never actually had to sell. So I remember still sitting the first day in my home office upstairs with my computer, copy of the yellow pages and a phone and thinking, what am I supposed to do? So I just started ringing companies. And what really put me off was I spoke to one company because I had no idea what I was doing, really had no idea. And I got through to this one company and this person said to me, you sound like you're absolutely desperate for business and put the phone down on me. And I thought, well, I am absolutely desperate for business. I've just started a business and I've got no customers and I need some. Um, but it really put me off selling because I thought, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm obviously doing it wrong. So um, a few years, so I joined networking groups and I, I did breakfast networking because you're building credibility, you're building relationships. Other people are using their contacts as well to help get your business. And that's what got me started. But then about four or five years into my business, I came across a guy who did Sandler sales training. Now Sandler, it, it's an American um, methodology for selling, but I absolutely loved it because it wasn't in your face type selling. It was a method for teaching, you know, how to, how to get the requirements from a prospect, how to put proposals together, how to follow a sales funnel through until you got to um, a, a sale. And they gave you lots of tips and techniques about how to do cold calling. And they made you do it, so they held you accountable for it. And you'd have to do role plays, which are the most uncomfortable things in the world to do. But you'll never be in a situation in real life that's as bad as a role play. So it kind of gives you that worst case scenario that you'll never encounter. But it gave me a lot of confidence. And I then started doing cold calling and actually got business off it really quickly using their techniques. So it was a case of, you know, doing things that very much the wrong way ignoring the fact that I needed to do it and denying that I was a salesperson at all. But every business owner is a salesperson because you're selling your business. Um, but, you know, you go through this denial of I'm not selling. I don't like selling. I don't have to do it. And then the realization, well, actually, I do need to do some selling because if I don't, I'm not going to grow this business and I'm not going to have any work. And having the, the tools and the techniques and the training that's what made the difference for me. And having somebody hold me accountable. So you'd have two weekly meetings where they would ask you, you know, how many calls did you make? How did those calls go? What did you learn from it? What are you doing differently? Where are you with this? So it was, it was a system that held me to account, but gave me the tools and techniques to, to, to practice 
for, for sales. And it's never held any fear since. Doesn't bother me at all anymore. That's good to hear. And, it's, and I'm sure for a lot of uh, other, you know, and it's not just women, right? MSPs in general yes. think of sales as something that you know, we don't have to do or we don't need to do. But it's something that they definitely need to do on a daily basis. So I think this is a good, good lesson for any MSP out there. Also, you you did mention about networking, right? And I wanted to ask you about that because for quite a few women, networking is something that they really struggle with. It's that access to a network, right? So how how did you go about that? You you did mention uh, you know where, where there's specific networking groups that you were part of. How did you break through into those? So that's it's an interesting thing. So I um, I was looking for sort of groups to try and join where I could go and meet other business people because it can be very lonely running your own business, especially when you're new into it, because there is so much that's unknown. So I was I joined the Chamber of Commerce and I joined the FSB because they are groups that are designed for local businesses and for the SME sector. Um, and I went to a few of their networking groups. And they have kind of open networking sessions where you can go for a lunchtime meeting and just meet up with other business people. So I went to a few of those, having joined the chamber and the FSB. And from there, you start to meet other people and the kind of the networks start to grow. So I met somebody who was setting up um, a breakfast networking group in Tamworth, which is where I live, and invited me along to it. So I went to that and I really loved it. And I met lots of other business people and it kind of grows from there. So you're, you go into a networking group, you'll meet other people who are part of other networking groups. And networking is all about word of mouth. It's all about trying to expand each network. So they'll all invite you to other meetings, whether they're breakfast meetings or whether they're lunchtime or whether they're evening meetings, but you will always come across people who will invite you to other networking events. And you just you just have to say yes and you just have to go. And some of them have very good training that sit behind them as well. So they'll they'll help you overcome that fear of walking into a room where you don't know anybody else, because there's nothing worse sometimes than you walk into that room and you think, OK, I don't know anybody in here. How am I going to start a conversation? So they'll give you conversation starters. They'll teach, you, you know, turn up early so that you're there before most other people, because then people who come in like you, they'll be feeling the same. You see them, you can go over and you can start a conversation. So they'll give you all those kind of tips and techniques that just make it a little bit easier. And then you just start to know people and it, the, the fear goes out of it. And there are quite a few women that I know that, that go networking. So I, I've been to most of the networks I belong to are both male and female oriented. Um, I've been part of some women only networking groups. Some of them work. Some of them don't work for me. So it depends what type of business you have. And it depends how you run that business and where you are in the maturity of it. So you know, if you are running kind of as a cottage industry, there are groups that are ideal for you to go and join. If you are running a business and you're working kind of the standardish nine to five type role, then there are groups as well that are better suited to that. But go to them, just find your local networking groups, go, go to a chamber meeting. They're the best way to start because they're, they're open. There are loads and loads of members that go to those events. They're easy to find and there are chambers of commerce 
all around the country. So go to something like that, meet other people, ask them where they network, ask them how they get on finding business in the local area, and they will introduce you to their networking groups and you can just expand it from there. And the other thing that teaches you as well is the strength of character in talking about your business, because a lot of them, the vast majority, have a set ish agenda where part of it will be you stand up and you talk about your business for a minute or two. And every so often you'll get the opportunity to promote your business for longer than that. So it makes you focus on what do I do? How can I educate other people about my business? And it, it's a very good marketing vehicle for, for your company. And you get to meet lots of superb people along the way. You know, I've made so many friendships through networking across the years. It, it's, it's unreal. And to the extent that not this weekend, the weekend afterwards, one of our networking groups, there's about 30 of us going on a cruise together, a weekend cruise. So it becomes, it spills over into friendships and into sort of relationships and things that are outside of work, but it, it's comfortable. So you have people that you can ask questions of. So if you're not sure of something, I know a very good solicitor, I know a very good insurance broker, I know a very good accountant, I know a good bookkeeper, and you start to build your networks up that way as well. Mm, it's the authenticity. And, and, and what I keep hearing is, you know, when you when you answered about this, you know, getting over the fear of sales or with networking, it's about doing it, right? That's that's when you get over that fear. It is absolutely so. People can give you techniques, they can talk to you about what you should do. But the only time it will ever make a difference and you will get rid of that fear is when you do it and nothing else will get rid of that fear. So you always have to swallow it to start with and then go out and just do it. And I, I do quite a lot of public speaking. And when I first started networking and public speaking, I was absolutely terrified. I would stand up and my knees would physically knock. It is the most bizarre sensation when your kneecaps are just going up and down because you don't know whether or not you can actually keep, keep standing, never mind say anything else. So you have to just do it. You have to swallow that fear and go out and do it. Use the techniques that people give you. Watch how other people do it. Don't set yourself up for failure. So don't ever apologize for saying something wrong because nobody else knows what you're going to say. So they don't know if you've said something wrong or not. And that was a big lesson for me, particularly when you're on stage and you're speaking. Your audience does not have a script that they're reading to know whether or not what you're saying is, is what you meant to say. So as long as you get your points across and you do it in a clear and articulate way, then it doesn't matter the words that you use. So if you don't say something that you meant to say in the way that you meant to say, it really doesn't matter. And we kind of have to let go of being perfect. So perfect is something we can strive for. Perfect is something that the vast majority of us will never, ever be. But, you know, you, you wouldn't want to be. We're a work in progress. Yeah, that, that, that's a very important point always. You know, that striving for perfection, right? You're setting yourself up for failure. Yes, that's it. And, and don't do that. There's no need for it. People don't judge us in the same way that we judge ourselves. That's True. And that, you know, that was another big lesson for me, that people don't view me in the way that I view me. So I have to kind of get out, out of my own way sometimes because my perception of me is not the same as other people's. And I think especially as, as women, we do beat ourselves up a little bit too much sometimes. 
and we think, you know, well, that, that wasn't very good and we could have done better and we should have done better. But actually, men don't see that. Other women don't see that. It's just our natural tendency to want to be the absolute very best that we can be. And we are. It's just we need to be a bit kinder to ourselves sometimes. Yes, completely. How did you land your first client? So that, that's another interesting story. So I, um, in, in, my, in my days of working with Yellow Pages, um, when I couldn't sell, I came across a company who was based in my town that were a training company. So I rang them to see whether they used third party trainers. And it took me about three or four months to kind of get through and to be heard and to, to get a meeting with them. And they said, yeah, you know, we could really do with your skills. You do Excel training, we don't do Excel training. Um, we'll, we'll take you on as a trainer so they did and they booked me for a training course and I turned up on I think it was a Monday morning I turned up at eight o'clock ready to get set up in, in their training room ready for the client to turn up to find all the gates were locked and I couldn't get in and I waited and I waited and nobody turned up and I waited and the client who I was supposed to be doing the training for on behalf of this training company the client turned up and we tried to get hold of this company and we couldn't. And what had transpired was that over the weekend, they'd gone bust, they'd gone into liquidation. So about half an hour, you know, we were all stood outside scratching our heads thinking, well, what, what do we do now? And um, the, the kind of legal uh, people turned up and took us inside and, and told us that the company had gone into liquidation um, and that we couldn't do the training. So the guy from the client said to me, well, you know, we still need the training. Do you still want to do the training? And I said, yes, I do. I've got my own business anyway. And that was my very first client. Um, and they are still a client today. Wow. That's so a wonderful story. Yeah, that's yeah. a wonderful story. Your message to MSPs who are struggling with revenue right now? If you're struggling with revenue, take a really good look at your finances. Look at your expenditure your overheads look at the rates that you're charging have a really good look through your help desk to see how that's running because if you're taking lots of calls from people there is something going wrong so make sure that you're working in scope that you've got very good um, service level agreements that you stick to those and that you're demonstrating the value that you're providing to your clients through the monthly recurring revenue that you're charging. Because if, if clients don't see it, they won't pay it. And because we are now so much more automated and driven by RMM tools and that, that the client doesn't see, if we don't go and talk to them about it, they don't understand what goes on behind the scenes. So make sure that you're talking to your clients that you're having regular reviews with them about how's, how are the support agreements going with them? How are they finding it? Do they have any issues? What would they like to say? Be proactive. So if you're struggling with revenue, just take apart your company, look at where its strengths lie, test your financials and make sure that you're charging the right amount, but that also you're not paying over the odds for your staff, for your tools, for your overheads, you have to have those finances in, in order. And if that's something that you struggle with, get some help. You know, most accountants will help you with that quite readily. And they, most of them won't charge you too much to do that either. And on that note, for, uh, you know, women MSPs or for women who 
want to become MSPs, what are your suggestions? What should they be doing? What do you think they should be doing? I think there's a huge opportunity for some really good MSP practices to start up. Um, I think, you know, if you're a woman and you're considering starting an MSP practice, now is absolutely the right time to do it. We, there's a lot of focus on women in technology, so you'll get a lot of help and a lot of support for it. Um, but make sure that you set it up with, as I said earlier, your, the correct infrastructure so that you're ready to grow. But have a plan for, for growth. So don't set your sights too small. Make sure that you are planning for, for big growth. And if you can major around cybersecurity, I would absolutely go for that. You know, MSPs these days, their world is changing. There's a lot more requirement from an end user um, to uh, want to have um, proper knowledge from their MSP about business practice, not just about the technology element of it, but about how to use technology within the business to achieve business results. So it's changing the nature of help desk staff a little bit. And help desk staff, rather than just being there to fix a printer problem, or I can't log on, or I need my password changing, help desks now, if they can be more proactive and they can look at, okay, well, you've had a problem with that printer before. So do we need to look at the printer? Do you need a new printer? You know, you, you're having problems with signing on. Do you need a bit of training around that? You're having problems with Excel. Well, you know, just talk to me about what you're doing. So it's becoming, it should be becoming more consultative and it should be turning more into a business conversation rather than a switch it off or I'll go into this and I'll, I'll change your, your password for you. So absolutely all of the stuff needs to be behind the scenes with the RMM tools, with PSA tools, that absolutely has to be there. That's a bare minimum, but build from that. So if you're building an MSP practice, build it around consulting, build, and, and you'll get more work from that. You'll get those nice projects that did profit um, and major around cybersecurity. So have that focus on how do you protect your clients, not just with antivirus and anti-malware and, and those kind of preventative things, but what can you proactively do that will help to support and secure your client side? So things like that include talking to the senior teams about how do they educate their staff around cybersecurity? So cyber awareness. Um, how do they know what they would do in the event of a cyber attack? So all your business continuity planning, disaster recovery planning, and um, things like if you had a web attack, what would you do? Do you have a protection for that? Because most MSPs don't look after websites because it's the web hosting company or the marketing company that will look after the website but then by their nature they're not necessarily techie people so they won't necessarily sell you a support contract to make sure that the back end of your website is being kept up to date is being patched is secure so a lot of companies end up on wordpress that's donkey's years out of date or other platforms that are just out of date that's a massive security risk so for msps if you're starting cover areas like that because other MSPs aren't doing it. And we've got a big opportunity right now to make a massive difference by having some women-led MSP practices and just to bring a different feel 
into that world. And there are some that I know, which is fantastic, but there aren't enough in the, in the um, market for it. Thank you so much, Tracy. It's really great to have you on Superpod. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. It's been lovely to meet you and to chat with you, Radhika. Thank you. Thank you.